When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 108 of VRP Rocks, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app right now so that you don't miss any of the big-name guests that I've got lined up for you with new VRP Rocks episodes dropping every single Monday. Now, a big thanks to everybody who reached out for the last couple of weeks over the last couple of episodes that's been released. They seem to have gone down really well. Uh, last week's side two with the wonderful Stuart Copeland. It's the second time we've caught up with him on VRP Rocks. Got a lot of love, as did the Winterstorm Festival episode. Something a bit different from me, it was recorded completely on location at the Winterstorm Festival itself. It gives you a real flavour of the weekend and chatting to some of the bigger acts and some of the newer acts, some of the people that attended the event, there's clips of songs that were played and a lot more as well. It was a lot of fun to make and I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. Check it out if you haven't already. But for today's episode then, well, as you can already see from the length of it, it's a good one. I did say on last week's side too that these next two weeks were going to be special and I can tell you that this guy has pretty much worked with a literal who's who of classic rock legends genuinely one of the greats of drumming I'm talking about people like The Who and Judas Priest and Jeff Beck and Mick Jagger David Coverdale and so many 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 more and to boot he's a super nice guy as well Simon Phillips I know you're really really going to enjoy hearing some of his brilliant stories but before we get to that please do check out VRP Rocks on social media give us a like or follow on Facebook X, Twitter, whatever it's called or Instagram and on YouTube as well the community is getting bigger and bigger by 
by the day on there. There's over 12,500 subscribers on the VRP Rocks YouTube channel now. And I post a fun classic rock poll every single day that there's, well, five, six, seven thousand people regularly participate in and they comment and they debate. It gets quite interesting on there. So if you're not on there yet, please do join in. Just search for VRP Rocks on YouTube and you'll find the channel. Over three million views the channel has had in 2023 alone, which is, well, mind boggling for me doing it all on my own. So uh, I thank everyone who watches, follows and votes on there. Thank you so much. But back to Simon Phillips then. I won't give him too much of a build-up because, well, the interview is going to absolutely speak for itself. You're going to hear some stories about a lot of legends of rock. Jeff Beck and Judas Priest and Toto and David Coverdale, Jack Bruce, Pete Townsend, loads, loads more as well. And they're all going to be told in a humble and humorous style too, starting right back as a tiny child, as a child prodigy really. So please get comfy or turn it up if you're driving or out for a walk and enjoy the life of one of rock's greatest drummers. This is Mr. Simon Phillips. Now, I'm delighted to welcome a man who has drummed with a literal who's who of superstars. We're talking credits which appear in alphabetical order, uh, the likes of Asia and Gary Moore and Jeff Beck and Jack Bruce and Joe Satriani and, and John Anderson and John Lord and Judas Priest and Michael Schenker and Mike Oldfield and Nick Kershaw, Pete Townsend, uh, Steve Hackett, Mike Rutherford, Madness, Steve Lukather, Toto, Trevor Rabin, The Who, and many, 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 many more as well. I am, of course, talking about the wonderful Simon Phillips, thank you for joining me, Simon. Good morning. Well, it's, it's morning here. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. It's, it's evening here. It's, it's dark, put it that way. Um, thank you so much for joining us here on VRP Rocks. Um, given that list, which is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination, um, what kind of got you into drumming and, and what were you listening to as a youngster then? Because obviously the styles that you've worked with since are, are very diverse. So what, what was it that got you into drumming and what sort of music styles did you like when you were young? <clears throat> I was brought up in the jazz world. Uh, my father was a, uh, well, was known for being a clarinetist. His name was Sid Phillips and he had, um, he had a Dixieland band. And for many years, actually, his first band he formed actually in 1925 it was called the Melodians. So really, pretty much the start of jazz in the UK, definitely. Um, oh, wow. And uh, he did, I mean, you know, all sorts of stuff. He, he did a lot of arranging for big bands, uh, one of them being Bert Ambrose. Uh, he went to New York, worked with Paul Whiteman, did his uh, arrangements. He had a radio show um, with, uh, um, I, I can't remember which radio station it was, but one of the New York stations um really up until um you know we had the uh, the second world war and of course he you know uh, was very patriotic so he came back and uh, immediately joined up and served um six years in uh, the RAF and he didn't do any music through that time he totally put it aside and said i'm uh, working for my country now you know so uh, don't ask me what he did i have no idea it's still secret <laughs> so oh, <wow. laughs> apparently yeah um so uh, uh i mean he could have been changing wheels on a lancaster i don't know <laughs> but no he was an intelligence so anyway as soon as the war finished he got back to music and uh formed his own band and uh was very very uh well known in the uk uh throughout the 50s um and i came along in 1957 um and he used to rehearse the band at uh, the house and this uh, i think from zero to three years old it didn't make too much of an impression 
um, certainly not from the drum kit, uh, but the, the, the lovely shiny horns, you know, the tenor and the baritone, the alto were like, oh, wow. And then, of course, the noise they made. That's the other thing. You know, it was like, you know. But one day uh, in 19, I guess it must have been 1960, it was, it was in my third year, um, he had a new drummer. It was his first rehearsal with the band. And he also kind of changed the setup. So if you walked into the living room, bang, there was the band and there was the drum kit. A beautiful Ludwig, uh, super classic drum kit, four-piece kit with a bright, shiny snare drum, chrome. And of course, you know, I was, you know, three years tall, <laughs> if you know what I mean, <laughs> looking up at the hi-hats going like this and the kick pedal going like this and the sound of the snare drum. And he was also a wonderful drummer. His name was Dave Rogers. And I have all this to blame him. You know, I blame him for all this. <laughs> um, and that was it. From that moment on, uh, although I didn't know it at the time, I knew what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Wow. I love hearing stories like that. So obviously you, you, your dad's background and everything like that was with jazz. So was, was jazz your first love? Yes. I grew up, like, the first rhythm I learned to play was a, basically a straight-ahead triplet-style rhythm, typical of, of more uh, Dixieland, so more um, Gene Krupa-like, uh, definitely where Louis Belson, Buddy Rich, uh, Chick Webb, where, where they all started from, uh, which is that, uh, you know, Chicago-type Dixieland, you know, four on the floor, four on the kick, you know. Um, very, very straight, but with the groove. That's the thing. It's it's finding the 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 subtlety of that uh, that triplet um, ride cymbal rhythm. So that's where I started, and uh, and a shuffle, of course. Those are the two main uh, rhythms, and that's what I grew up with. So jazz was very very big on my um, horizon. My mother was a huge jazz fan, and that's how she met my dad. And uh, she was a big fan of Count Basie um benny goodman and that's what i grew up in the house that's what was there it was my dad's music as well loads of 78s you know shellac and um um but i also had a, a, a i had two elder brothers half brothers and they were into rock and roll so i was also hearing uh um you know the beatles when when they started the rolling stones when they started cliff richard in the shadows uh Bill Haley, of course, had the 78s. Um, so it was, it, it was a mixture of early rock and roll and, and jazz, but my parents could not stand rock and roll. <laughs> so it was not allowed to be played kind of when they were present, only when they were busy doing something. So, so I had a, uh, I'd play along, you know, when, when, I, when I was old enough to have something to hit, you know. Uh, and that was it. Yeah. So the big grounding in, in, in jazz. Yeah. So when you say there, when you're old enough to hit, I mean, when did you first start playing in groups and in bands? Oh, well, I, my dad didn't want me to be a musician. That was quite obvious, but my mom did. Um, <laughs> and I had at that time, I had a snare drum and a cymbal. That's all I had. Um, the interesting thing was I was having piano lessons, but the teacher 
course, this is, you know, in the early 60s. She was trying to teach me, you know, like a C major triad and C major scales. My brain was already used to complex jazz harmony. Yeah. It was the most boring shit I'd ever heard was, you know, a C major triad. And so I just kept looking at my little snare drum and cymbal because if I could play drums, I just put the records on. So I hear all this wonderful music. If she had shown me uh, a G sus four chord, I would have been, would have loved piano, would have loved to have learned it. But, uh, you know, I wasn't old enough to know the, the, uh, how, how to do that. So I had no interest in learning, you know, some, you know, classical type piano. I wanted to get on the drum kit so I could hear great music. That was kind of more where 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 I was at, you know, and playing along to these these uh, records. So um, my dad decided when I was six years old to see if I really had any worthwhile talent. He set me the task of learning two of his songs, and then he used to, I used to go to sessions with him. So I was being dragged around BBC Studios from when I was tiny. So, which was amazing to have that experience, you know, uh, the discipline of sitting in a seat as a five-year-old and not making a, na a noise because the red light's on. I mean, it, it's quite interesting how that's hard to, for a five-year-old to do. But I mean, yeah, you know, I would have been, I would have been hung, drawn, and quartered if I, if I opened a sweet wrapper, you know, <laughs> thrown out on the M1, you know. <laughs> um, so uh, the idea was at the end of his uh, of the broadcast, uh, I was to play two songs and record two songs with his band. So uh, I still have the recording. It's oh, hilarious. Wow. But the thing <laughs> is, I got through it. I didn't make too many mistakes. I started with the band. I finished with the band, you know. So I basically what I had memorized the song because I couldn't read music at that stage. I'd memorized the two songs. They were recorded, and uh, that's what he said. Oh, dear. I think he's going to be a musician, <laughs> you know. So, uh, and, and, that, and then I started sitting in the, with, in, with the band occasionally on gigs when I was eight years old. Until, oh, what? Yeah, until um, I joined the band when I was 12, um, mainly because his style of music, it was quite old-fashioned. And nobody in London wanted to play like that anymore. All the drummers wanted to play like Elvin Jones and Roy Haynes. And, you know, they, they, they didn't want to play this trad style. Um, I grew up with it. It was second nature to me. I couldn't play anything else. Well, a little bit. But that was ingrained in me. And even though I was incredibly inexperienced, uh, dynamics, I'm playing as loud as I can. <laughs> you know, it's... Um, but from his point of view, even though it was raw and it was inexperienced, I had good time. And whenever I did drift, he was really on my case and I could read by then I could read the charts and I could play the style. And for him, it was just like, finally, I've got a drummer that knows how to play this style. And which is pretty amazing to, to be entrusted in a band where the, where the youngest guy was 30 years old and going up to 60 by that time he was he was 60 when i joined the band he was 61 
So, uh, and, and the other guys were all 60, 50, 40. And they changed too, because in those days you just forget, you know, you ring up and you, you find who's available and, and off you go. So I was traveling up and down the British Isles every weekend for two or three shows and then uh, skiving off school. And school was a problem. I had to find a place that would um, accept the fact that I was already earning a living. And that, that was the other thing. I, I, I was already earning a living at 12 years old. So it, it was, I mean, when I look back at it now and I look at a 12-year-old, I go, how was that even possible? You know, but it, it happened and, and it was the most amazing apprenticeship anyone could ever have. Yes, it's absolutely fascinating as well to, like you say, to, to think that at such a young age, you had such abilities to be able to comprehend being in a band situation and, and performing in front of people and, and, and everything like that. It's just it's staggering, really. Yeah, you know, but you see, children are very, um, they're sponges and they can adapt so quickly, yes. much quicker than, than adults. Um and um, it, it, yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, uh, what I learned was was musical discipline. He was very tough. You know, he was you know not from the Victorian era, but you know he was from the you know twenties and thirties. I mean, and very strict. And um, mm. I mean, at times, <laughs> at times, especially when I was getting older and growing my hair and and playing along to Blood, Sweat, and Tears in Chicago and wanting to play rock and roll which he hated um it got it, it got quite tense and sometimes the band had to kind of uh you know have a chat with him say you a little bit too you know too rough with him you know so uh but you know as a child i didn't even i was told this many years later by some of the band members i didn't even realize it at the time because yeah. children don't you know it's uh it's the norm so interesting, yeah, because uh, I, I think of it more now as a 66-year-old than I have more than any other time in my life, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. Absolutely. Um, so when did you did you make the move away from from working with your dad's group and, and begin working with, with other groups? Because you, you did a lot of recording, didn't you? So when did that happen? Um, so uh, I was in this band for four years, 1973, uh, I think it was May, yeah, it was me. Uh, he died very suddenly. So that kind of put everything on hold. And I was kind of basically faced with the uh, the question of, what do you want to do? Do you want to continue the band? Well, by that time, I, the last thing I wanted to play was, was jazz. Yeah, I wanted to get into rock and roll. I'd already started doing recording sessions with him. So I was starting to get, I've already had my first, few experiences of playing in the studio um and i'd also was starting to play with other band leaders you know still playing dance music basically uh you know bow tie suit and <laughs> um uh, but that's not what i wanted to do and so i said no but the other reason was uh i'm i'm a purist and without him his his way of playing his tone very, very, very special. It was not the Benny Goodman tone at all. It was more Artie Shaw. It was a beautiful tone. I mean, really. And nobody would have been able to fill that spot. And it just would have been, 
you know, the Sid Phillips band B, you know. And I just, even at that age, I knew it's, it's, this is not going to work. So, you know, um, I had to disband the band and suddenly I was out of work. But um, the, I got a break. Uh, I did a few gigs, you know, like dance band gigs and it kind of fizzled out really. And I got my first straight job, you know, uh, working in a hi-fi store, which was wonderful because I was really into hi-fi and uh, you know, my mom had quite a rig, and and so I used to anybody that came in for like Hoover bags, I tried to sell them a, a hi-fi system, only because I wanted to go and set it up for them. <laughs> um, I did sell a few, uh, but I wasn't very good at that, you know. So um, I think I sold. Uh, you know who Lionel Blair was? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. I sold Tap his wife a washing machine <laughs> once. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, and then uh, I got a call from uh, the contractor of a West End show called Jesus Christ Superstar that was into, just had just finished its first year, or coming up to its first year. Uh, would I like to audition for the show? I went, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so he said, right, where do you live? And I gave him my, my address, and he said, right, I'll drop the, the charts around. And he knocks on the door, and I open the door, and he looks at me, he goes, uh, uh, are you Simon? I said, yeah. He said, can you read music? Oh, yeah. Okay. And he gave me this big pad of music, which is the, the show for Jesus Christ Superstar. I said, thanks. He said, right, uh, and he told me the date of the audition. And I said, right, I'll be there, Palace Theatre, 10 o'clock in the morning, whatever. You know, went out and got the record, you know, the uh, of Jesus Christ Superstar and started going through the charts. And what had happened was one of the keyboard players, Dave Cullen, used to play in my dad's band. Okay. And he was so encouraging and helpful. He used, he used to bring LPs and lend them to me. He lent me Chick Corea, Now He Sings, Now He Sobs, Don Ellis, Stan Kenton. I mean, he really was the guiding light to get me into, you know, that, that kind of music. And uh, they were looking for a new drummer, and he put my name forward. He said, he's really young, but he can do the gig, which was really amazing. And I turned up, and, you know, people in the business, musicians, had already heard of me. They'd already heard, oh, you know, check out, you know, Sue Phillips on his playing, blah, 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 you know. So they weren't, it wasn't totally alien to them. They had heard, but they hadn't played with me yet. Actually, you know, I think I met a couple of the musicians that were playing there on a, uh, on a session once, but I wasn't playing. I just was brought along to it. And, uh, yeah, we did the, the audition. And they said, uh, all right, we'll let you know. And I'm like this. <laughs> and I got the call uh, a, few, a, few, a few hours later. You've got the gig. So that was really the start of uh, my you know, professional career outside of my father. And in those days, you didn't have drum machines. You didn't have sequences. If you wanted to make a demo, you had to hire musicians. And you had to hire a cheaper studio, usually a four-track or maybe an eight-track. Uh, and at that point, Studios were just starting to get delivery. This is 1973 of 24 track machines, but most studios were still 16 track at that point. So 
I, you know, somebody in the Jesus Christ Superstar cast would ask me, "You want to come do a demo with me?" Um, sure, yeah. And so, and so, I'd be booked for that date, and then I'd turn up, and the other musicians, of course, much older than me, and they go, "Okay," and I play the track, you know, and they go, "Hey, give me a number," and then, and that's how it happened. It was like a chain effect, and suddenly the bass player, and I remember. Uh, John Prizman, I think that might be his name. I may be wrong, but and I remember he he got my number, and then he called me for another session. So now I'm doing another session with so many people I don't know every single, you know, not every day, but almost every day. That's what it turned into. Uh, into when I had to buy another drum kit because I couldn't keep taking my kid out of the Palace Theatre every time I had a session. It was it was very tricky, you know, uh, to get it up on the stage and you know. So, yeah, that's how it started. Fantastic stuff. Absolutely fantastic. Love hearing all this sort of stuff. Um, brilliant, Simon. We're going to move on to your professional career. And obviously, this is a rock podcast, so we'd like to hear about the, the big-name rock acts that you've worked with, and you've worked with so many. We listed them earlier. Um, what I want to start with, though, is is an album that doesn't get talked about very often at all at the moment, but the, but the guy himself is obviously a huge superstar. I'm talking about um, David Coverdale's debut solo record. Yeah, um, he just left Deep Purple. Um, the album itself was called White Snake, was where yeah. he took the name for the band afterwards, and yeah. and you appeared on that. So um, again, how did you get involved with that one, and what do you remember of David from that time? Well, actually, that was Roger Glover. Roger Glover was the producer okay. of that album, and um, uh, it was all the same year, nineteen seventy six. So I had been by that time. I started doing sessions in seventy three. So I had been to pretty much most of the studios around London. And started to play on, you know, started to play on more rock and roll albums as opposed to doing jingles and, you know, straighter sessions. Um, and, um, uh, and so there's various contractors at that time around London and they would book you for, for sessions. And I was uh, booked by Mountain Fjord, which is uh, more of a rock and roll type session contractor. Um, you know, he would book uh, string sessions for Elton John and, um and um uh, um oh, various instrument uh, various uh, musicians for uh, Kiki D uh, I mean various you know more rock and roll type yeah. things I'm trying to remember names you know um and Roger wanted to do a solo album but he was looking for a drama and so he called uh, one of the guys at Mountain Fjord and straight away they said oh Simon Phillips Oh, okay. No, I, I haven't heard of him. I said, well, he's he's kind of new on the scene. Um, he's very young. Oh, okay. So anyway, I was asked to go to Roger's house to meet him. And so I drive out to Buckingham and and I go to this big rock star's house. You know, I'm like, oh wow, you know, and I, you know, ding dong or whatever it was, you know, <laughs> knock knock, and he opens the door and he's looking at me. And he, he's told me this this story so many times. He said, yeah, I opened the door. And there's this kid, spotty kid out there. And I said, yeah, I'm Simon. He said, well, you better come in. And um, he didn't know whether to ask me for if I wanted a cup of tea or an orange squash <laughs> and a nice lolly. <laughs> so I said, yeah, oh, yeah I'll, I'll have a cup of tea. You know, <laughs> got any biscuits? <laughs> and uh, we're chatting and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, look, come through to the studio and uh let's play and i guess he must have called john lord he said john come on round and because i think they live for they all live fairly close to each other ian and uh, 
uh, both Ian's, um, and um, uh, and I he had a little Ludwig John kit there, so I sat down on it, and he picked up his bass, and then John came in, and I'm going, Shh, I think that's John Lord, bloody hell, you know, I've got half of Deep Purple here, this is great, you know, and uh, we're just jamming, and they're kind of looking at each other going, wow, you know, um, and that was it. He said, right, come to Munich and let's make a record. And it was really from that that I started. He started booking me for all the people that he was producing. And one was David Coverdale. One was Barbie Benton, <laughs> one of Hugh Hefner's girls. And one, of course, was Michael Schenker. So if that was later, that was in 1980. So that's how the White Snake um, album happened. And we recorded at Kingsway um, Recorders. Uh, Mickey Moody, Tim Hinkley, oh gosh, Delal Harper playing bass. And David was larger than life and hilarious. And the one thing I knew hanging out with, with the Deep Purple guys, they were all hilarious people really funny martin birch was the engineer he was funny uh john lord would come round, and i mean uh and, and of course um uh, pete york who was a big friend of theirs you know especially in, in munich you know he lived there um i mean the whole session would just grind to a halt with the comedy you know really funny and and david was was absolutely wonderful uh we we had a great time we made a i think we made a great record yeah, it's a really interesting record because there's a lot of mix of styles on there, isn't it? It's not just a yes. straightforward kind of blues rock or anything. There's lots of different elements to it. So it is a really interesting record. Yeah, yeah. No, it was lovely. And it was a, a really fun record. And, and uh, yeah, I remember it well. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, David so did ask me pit? to join the band. Okay. Uh, I, it was so, so we did this in 76. Uh, it was around the summertime. And then uh, he was forming the band at the beginning of 77. And he called me and said, uh, yeah, I'd like, like you to play with uh, uh, White Snake, you know. And uh, I said, well, David, I can't. I've signed to Robert Stigwood organization to play with Jack Bruce. And that was all happening in the same year. 76 was the biggest year in terms of doing records. During COVID, I spent some time going through my old diaries, mm -hmm. which luckily were saved from the fire that I had. And um, I had kept, I had all my diaries from 1973 up until when I left England, so 92. And I tried to put together all the recording sessions, all the albums that I played on for these years. And when I got to 76, it's just Excel sheets. It's ridiculous. And I remember, um, you know, the alarm would go off. I used to have a tease made. <laughs> don't even remember what that is and you could hear the <laughs> boiling water and so automatic tea because i'd have to get up real quick get in the car and drive to a studio and i was so tired i'd start driving to the wrong studio <laughs> and uh, i was living in with a uh, back at back of my mom's house and it was in Hertfordshire, so i had to there were various routes to get to different parts of london and i'm hoping i was where am i going Oh shit! No, I got to go to Lansdowne. It's you know I've got to go to EMI. It yeah. I mean every day three, pretty much three studios a day for a while. It was crazy. 
That sounds insane. And I'm guessing was it was it around this time that you did uh, Sin After Sin for, for Judas Priest as well? That was in the beginning of 1977. Uh, Again, Roger Lover. They were looking yeah. for a drama. And, uh, of course, Roger said, well, we've got just a guy. And... Um, so, yeah, I turned up to a rehearsal. And again, you see, in those days, um, a lot of bands didn't have demos. Uh, it was just a question of... Um, uh, um, uh, so, so Ian played bass, uh, Glenn, right, and, and KK. But Glenn was really the main writer of, of, of the, the band and the, the driving force. And he says, right, first song goes like this. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, join in and play. So, right then, the next session goes like this, and and that's how we put the songs together. It was amazing. And into we went into Ramport Studios, which is uh, Pete Townsend Studio, and uh, we recorded Sin After Sin, and um, it was great. Right around my nineteenth uh, birthday. Nineteen. So, that's incredible. <laughs> no, sorry, twentieth birthday. I was nineteen at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was a great, great album. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, is that another one? Did they ask you to to stay as a permanent member? Yeah, yeah. You see, pretty much every every time I work with a band, they they wanted me to come out on the road with them. Um, and um, well, so it's a funny thing. Uh, I, I was a session musician. That's how I earned my living. As much as I wanted to go and tour, especially go touring in the States, there was always this thing, shit, I better not leave town because I might not have any sessions to come back to. That was kind of the the, the, the attitude of a lot of musicians back then, you know? Okay. Um, it was, uh, um, you know, do, working in the States, uh, especially in Los Angeles in the 70s, I mean, it was amazing. They, they would... Um, you know, they, they, those musicians did really, really well. But England was different. London's different, you know. And, uh, you know, I guess the tax was high. Uh, the cost of living has always been high, you know. Um, so it, it was <clears throat> it was a different existence. And, uh, you know, you really had to look after, you know, what, you know, I don't want to lose a job, you know. So that was always the thing about, you know, going out on the road with the band. But the other thing was, uh, I, I think it was mainly at that time, it was the Jack Bruce band. And I had met Jack, we did a record, and, you know, uh, Jack was just, I mean, I love the music. The music, <clears throat> as well, it was rock, but it was more progressive. <clears throat> and he has a big jazz background. So the music suited my playing so much better. It was also very challenging. I think that was the thing. And I love Jack. I mean, we we got on so well. He kind of took me under his wing, and uh, um, but he would never say anything. He said, "It goes like this," and we play. It was never uh, like, "No, can you play it like this or like that?" It was just however you played it was fine. It was very cool, very jazz attitude actually. Yeah. And some of the some of his songs were quite difficult to understand and and figure out how to play. They weren't standard in, in any way or form. Harmonically, they were very involved and form-wise. So it was a wonderful learning experience. And that's when I said, yes, this is the guy I want to go out on the road with. And we had a great band. Tony Hymas playing keys, Huey Burns playing guitar. He played that famous uh, guitar solo on um, 
Jerry Rafferty's uh, Baker Street. So, um, yeah, that that to me, and that's the reason I had to say no to all these other, you know, wonderful opportunities, really. Incredible opportunities you're offered. So in terms of being with Jack, how long were, were you with Jack and, and why did you end up parting company with Jack when you did? Two years. We uh, we made the record in uh, uh, August or September of 76. We toured for most of 77. We made another record in 78, but he got dropped from his record company. Okay. And, you know, personal, his personal life kind of fell apart a little bit. So it was the writing was on the wall. Sadly, that was kind of the end of the project. Um, and then all of a sudden, Jeff Beck. <laughs> Thanks to, Just Jeff Beck, the way you say it. <laughs> yeah, it was Max Middleton, uh, who I'd done many sessions with. Jeff was looking for a new band. He had just finished uh, his project with Jan Hammer, um, which is yep. 76. Um, and um, Max recommended me. He recommended John Giblin as well, who ended up playing with... Um, uh, 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 um, 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 oh, what's the band? Is it Simple Minds? Simple Minds. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, and John, absolutely lovely. We did a lot of sessions together. Uh, tall Scotsman, um, beautiful player. We, 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 yeah, we had a lot of fun together. Um, and we went down to Jeff's house and we just jammed for a bit. And um, Jeff didn't quite get on with John, uh, but he uh, was fine with me and all of a sudden I was getting calls to record with Jeff uh, asking him uh, uh, asking me where should we record who can you recommend an engineer mainly because you know I was in the I was in studios you know uh, yeah. and so I knew all the studios which would be the suitable place to record and I chose Ramport to me it was the most rock and roll studio at the time um, and um, Jan Hammer came over and it was the first time I met Jan. Of course, I'm a huge Mahavishnu Orchestra fan. And I was like, wow, you know, this is amazing. And it was just Jeff, Jan, and myself, no bass player. Jan played yeah. Moo bass, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started recording uh, the songs for There and Back. And then I got a call. Would you uh, come down and rehearse? This is Jeff's manager, Ernest Chapman. He is ex-military tank commander, you know. And he, he dealt with everything very military-like, you know. And... Uh, Hello, dear boy. Yes, would you uh, come down to Jeff's house and uh, 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 come and play with Stanley Clark? Uh, the Stanley Clark? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so now I'm driving down to, you know, East Sussex, and uh, I get there and meet Jeff and meet Stanley. <laughs> it's like wow, you know. And then all of a sudden, we're we're off to Japan to do a tour, and um, yeah. Uh, that, that was that's kind of how that came about yeah incredible okay <laughs> every, every story you tell is incredible in terms of jeff then obviously we, we sadly lost him earlier this year at the start of this year in fact yeah. um yeah. everyone always speaks so highly of his his talent with the guitar and he's one of the greatest we've seen i mean you've obviously worked with some incredible guitarists i mean where do you rank him in terms of of rock guitarists yeah i mean i, I really have been lucky to work with you know some of the best guitarists in in the, in yeah. the world well all i can say is their heroes are, are Jeff. Their hero was always Jeff. That's the thing, you know, no matter how good they were, and they were fantastic, you know, with our fantastic, Joe Satriani, Steve Lukather, but you talked about Jeff and they go, well, you know, and I, I understand why, 
I worked very closely with Jeff for two years. In 1981, after there and back, we were working on a project, and it was just the two of us. And I was just, you know, I just started writing music, so I was really trying to compose music with Jeff. Um, and um, we were trying all sorts of bass players out. Um, but back then, Jeff was, he was very difficult to get out on the road. He, he, he was, you know, we would only tour two weeks, three weekends. That's all he would want to do. He just lost patience with it. Um, so he just wanted to get home. Um, I hear in later years, he was much more enthusiastic about touring and did a lot more. Um, but back then, it was kind of tough, you know. Um, so we worked very closely. And, you know, I used to be down at his house quite often. And we'd be watching TV in the in the living room, and he'd have his guitar. And a lot of this stuff that he started playing later, he was already experimenting with. You could just hear it, just the sound of the strings. You know, it wasn't plugged in or anything. He's just watching the news or watching a documentary, and, and he's going, he's trying all this stuff. And, you know, he had a very unorthodox way of playing, you know, a lot of thumb over the top of the neck, and he hardly, he never used a pick. Yeah. I remember him when he's kind of stopped using a pick. It was just fingers, you know. And, um, yeah, it was really quite amazing. And I, I remember in his music room, he had loads of guitars just resting up against the, the sofa. <laughs> and he was big into cars. And, and often yes. uh, his fingernails were full of oil. And if you shook hands with him, I mean, he used to wipe his hands on his T-shirt first, then shake hands. And then I used to pick up these guitars and you'd have to wash your hands afterwards because in the frets, there was ingrained oil, motor oil, you know. Um, and uh, he had a whole bunch of uh, Ibanez guitars. They were trying to, and they were beautiful. I mean, I'm not a guitar player, but I was trying to kind of get, and I said, Jeff, why don't you use these guitars? And he'd say, ah. Oh, they're too easy to play. I like a hard guitar to play. <laughs> he was frightened that if he if he got used to playing guitar that was too easy to play, he'd lose his technique. So he always he liked to fight the guitar. He always, you know, isn't that amazing? So yeah, uh, yeah we worked very closely with, with with each other for a while, um, and it, the the project didn't take off. Um, we tried various things, but yeah, it, it didn't really work. We did even recorded some some stuff uh, with Bob Ezra as a producer, but yeah, it kind of it was a bit stillborn. And then Mick Jagger came into the uh, fray. Um, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. <laughs> Incredible stuff. I'd, I'd heard uh, similar stories from Jim McCarty from from Jeff's time in the Yardbirds, and he, he used to say he'd turn up and he'd be covered in grease and oil and all that sort of yeah. stuff and be. A, completely unkempt uh, which was a, a marked contrast from eric clapton obviously so yes, yeah, yeah wonderful stuff um what um uh, let's move on to to pete townsend next i'm just trying to think who we can who we can go through um you obviously worked with him multiple times uh, empty glass album i think was the first time um yep. now it's it's very well documented he was going for a difficult time at, the, at this point wasn't he with, with addiction and everything else that was going on with with, with him um that album came out it was a successful album it was a good album as well yeah. um what what was it like working with pete around that time then well um it was 1979 
I had just come off a European tour with Jeff and Stanley, and I got a call, I, I think from his office, actually, uh, to, to do a record with him. And um, so I turned up to Wessex Studios uh, to record, start recording those songs for Empty Glass. He came in, and it was absolutely, I mean, lovely. Came straight up to me and said, I'm Pete. I went, yeah, I'm Simon. Hello. And uh, he said, yeah, I first saw you play on, uh, or I first heard you play on the Gordon Gill Trap album, uh, which was, uh, I can't remember what, what, what that was called, uh, but he had a, a, a quite a successful hit. It was on Top of the Pops. I didn't play on the Top of the Pops uh, uh. Um, uh, TV show. It might have been Ian Mosley that actually mined to, to my parts. I think it was Ian, but I'm, I'm not exactly sure, um, who, as you know, plays in Murley. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's where he heard me and uh, wanted me to play. And I think it was the first time I worked with producer Chris Thomas. Uh, <laughs> I had worked with Bill Price, the engineer, quite a few times up at Air Studios, so I knew him. Um, and that's how the relationship with Pete started. You never would have known that Pete was, had any issues at all. He was, he was absolutely lovely. Um, I, his demos are just stunning. Okay. And he played this one particular demo, and I'm in the control room, and I said, well, Pete, what do you want us to do? <laughs> it sounds like it's finished to me. <laughs> and he said he was very kind of, oh, yeah, yeah thank you, but no, 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 we, we have to recut it, you know. Oh, okay. Off we go. <laughs> it was um, it was amazing, and uh, yeah, we we would then work with uh, you know he'd call me back to do the um, next album, Chinese Eyes, I think, and uh, so um, and then uh, uh, all of a sudden, um, you know, uh, we we did the uh, we did the Iron Man project. I went and had a a meeting with him because by this time I'd started producing. And that was thanks to Mike Oldfield, who okay. I uh, had various calls from Richard Branson to go to do a session with Mike. And I couldn't do it because I was off to New York to play with somebody. And Richard got quite annoyed. He said, but, but I want you for the session. I said, but Richard, I'm going to be on a plane tomorrow whenever it was and he got really pissed off <laughs> no one says no <laughs> yeah so uh and then i think mike tried to get me to do a session for him a couple of times and then we met actually in new york city in tony romas i had been playing with al Demiola, uh going back in more to the jazz thing and he was on his tour for five miles out we met and then he called me um that was 82 83 to play on crises yeah. and um we got on great absolutely fantastic it was really fun and from a technical point of view technology point of view it was great because i was way into studio equipment stuff like that i wanted to start engineering and start producing but in those days quite difficult to break into the other side of the glass you know okay. and um we had recorded all the tracks for Crises, and he called me you know, a couple of weeks later and said, well, what are you up to? Uh, I'm doing this, doing that. In fact, I'm actually uh, doing a production at the moment. I'm producing a, uh, an artist called Duncan Brown. And he said, oh, 
you produce? And I said, well, you know, just, just starting to. He said, how would you like to come and produce me? Oh, uh, uh, sure. <laughs> wow, okay. And um, he said, let's do a trial week. So off I went to Buckingham and turned up at the studio. And I thought, well, he has an, a Neve console. It's an 8108. Uh, I need to get a, an engineer from Air Studios because they're all Neve up there that, that knows a, a, a Neve console. So I got this engineer and we both turned up and uh, we did a day working on particular tunes. And, and then we finished that day and I turned up the next day, no engineer. And... I said, uh, where's so-and-so, the Scottish guy, and I can't remember his name. He said, oh, I, I fired him. Oh. And then he came in with this manual about this thick. It was the Neve manual. <laughs> he said, I'll see you in about three hours. Oh, and I'm, I'm, and he, I'm on the console. I'm sitting in the chair, right on the console with the, with the manual on top of the console. And I'm going, and I'm... Oh, wow. I mean, this thing is like, you know, thousands of pages oh, thick. <laughs> and I'm supposed to try to figure out how to use this console. And I mean, I've used a couple of consoles before, but, you know, pushed a fader here and a mute button and maybe an oxend here. But I mean, I knew the, I knew how a studio is connected. That's one thing, because I've been into electronics for, for, for a while. So I knew the signal path. But not much more than that, you know. And uh, looking around the studio, well, as anybody knows, the most important part of a studio is the patch bay. That's the most complicated part, but it's the thing that connects everything to everything. And that's tricky. So, you know, when you walk into a studio for the first time and you're engineering, pretty much, I mean, you, you know what the console is, you know what the tape machine is, or Pro Tools now, of course. Yeah. It's the patch bay. And now I've made quite a few of them, so I, I I do know you know how they work. But that that you know everybody kind of you're supposed to do it a certain way, but you know times change and you know things change. So, and then he came back and said, "Right, let's record some acoustic guitar." And I'm going, "Oh!" <laughs> so, and he showed me how to root. That's the thing. That's the important thing. You know, how do you root this channel to this track on the tape machine? And He's out there, and that you know he's already set up for it. But I don't hear any acoustic guitar, and I'm looking around for anything that's moving—a meter—and it was. There was a Yuri eleven seventy-six, which is a compressor, and it was moving. So I went, ah, ah, and it's got a number on it. So up to the patch bay. Oh, okay. And, oh, into channel twenty-two. Great. Okay, channel twenty-two. <laughs> Suddenly, ah, oh, I can hear it. Oh God. I mean. He dropped me in at the deep end. I was going to say that. That's being thrown in the deep. That's learning yeah. on the job, that is, isn't it, right there and then? Well, he, he because of the way we had been working, he knew I was pretty technical, especially with miking drums and recording drums and that, this kind of stuff. He just thought, he just took a gamble. He said, I think he can do it. And he always liked to have a musician who was an engineer because there's a different slant on it. Um, and he taught me everything, you know, punches. God, we would do the most amazing punches on, on you know, drop-ins, drop-ins and outs. Yeah, yeah. He said, right, pop me in here, and he played this lick, and out. Just those five notes, that's all we need. Okay, rewind, start, 
You ready? Yeah, yeah. In, out. <laughs> Said you dropped out a little early. I went, yeah. <laughs> right. So, and so I have my Mike to thank for my engineering career. He he was he, he was fabulous, you know. So uh, anyway. Back to Pete, uh, um, we were talking and I said, yeah, I'm, you know, producing now. And he said, come, come and have a meeting. So I went down to Eel Pie and uh, we had the most amazing chat. Talk about not really much about records or producing, but, you know, about, you know, his life and, and um, stuff he's going through and stuff like that, you know. So uh, and then we, we started working on the Iron Man project, which was Fabulous, you know. Uh, I was basically I had a studio all to myself, I had a Synclavia all to myself, and uh, had to figure out how to work that. You know, it, it was it was wonderful working on uh, stuff like that. He just leave me to it, and then he come in occasionally. Got anything to play me? I said, Yeah, actually, I've got something to play, and I played him, and he'd say something, and very funny. It was great. He's uh, I I do miss working with Pete. I have to say, his songs are just they play themselves. I don't do anything. I just hold the sticks. The song plays itself. <laughs> Beautiful. And talking about um, working with Pete, you obviously um, joined the Who, didn't you, for the re reunion tour in 1989? I mean, that's um, that's quite a difficult one out of thought because you're stepping into a band who Keith Moon is probably one of the, the best known drummers. Him and probably John Bonham, the sort of drummers that even your grand knows, even your mum knows, sort of thing. The man on the street yeah. knows who those drummers are. So, how was it kind of jumping into? Because obviously Kenny Jones had been in the band and out out of the band at that point as well when you joined. So, how was it kind of joining the Who for that for that tour? Well, okay, so and, and that's one thing I'm very, uh, very important to mention. You know, I was not replacing Keith. I was replacing yeah. Kenny. You know, remember Kenny joined that band. I, I mean, Keith was a was a good friend of Kenny, and and and, and so was John. And um, he, you know, I think it was kind of like a yes, of course, Kenny should should come in and play. And uh, the first time I saw the Who was actually with Kenny. Pete, Pete invited me to the show in London, and I thought it was amazing. I loved it. I thought I loved the way uh, Kenny played. Um, but you know, uh, people, uh, some people tend to forget. You know, uh, what was it like? You know, taking over from Keith Moon. I said no. I took over from Kenny, not from Keith. He must have joined in, in, in like uh, uh, must have been nineteen eighty. I'm thinking. You know, so when when Pete popped, popped the question, my first thing was, what about Kenny? Is, I mean, does he know about this? And, and he said, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of that. And I said, well, I mean, as long as that's cool, then yes, I would love the opportunity. And um, so that's how that came about. And uh, yeah, of course, it was amazing. I mean, right before then, I had been playing with Mick Jagger. And the, Jeff Beck recommended me to make and we started recording in 1986 for primitive cool and then we were trying to put together a band in 1987 jeff was the guitar player but it was interesting because the four of us mick jeff dougie wimbush and myself we we did some uh playing just some jamming and, and recording in New York City. Um, it sounded incredible. And Mick was playing. We didn't. <clears throat> we weren't really. We, we weren't really jamming on any, any of the songs. We were just kind of jamming. And he was playing harp, and amazing. 
amazing harp player, you know, and it really had a vibe to it. But <clears throat> I think, I think Mick, <clears throat> with his first visit to Japan, he, in order to keep the audience, he had to play Rolling Stones material. And I think it was kind of <clears throat> more of a long-range plan to try to get over the, the problems of being banned from coming into Japan to bringing the Stones to Japan. So, you know, it was it didn't quite work out. Mick wanted two guitar players, and Jeff didn't want to play with another guitar player. And I and it was fascinating the 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 uh, rehearsals actually. Um, so it was kind. Of, I, I at that time I couldn't really understand why. You know, why you've got Jeff? You don't need another guitar player. You know, why are we doing all these Stone songs? You've got great material. You know. But now, much later, I, 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 I think I understand it a lot more. Um, so Jeff just eventually bailed. He said, no, I'm not doing this. So we took a break, and then eventually in 1988, we, um, <clears throat> we started touring with Mick. <clears throat> and that meant learning so many songs. I mean, it was, I, I kid you, it was like 60 or 70 songs. Oh, wow. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, so we did the touring, and then... Really, after that, it was The Who. And I had to learn even more songs. Because <laughs> not only was it The Who catalogue, or a lot of Who songs, it was Pete's songs, Roger's solo songs, and, and John's solo songs. Plus a couple of uh, kind of uh, blues songs that Roger wanted to do, you know? So it was a lot, you know, a lot of rehearsal. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I can imagine. But it was uh, the, the, the first show we played which was in Glens Falls, New York, it was four and a half hours long. We have way too many tunes. <laughs> so we had to try and take about an hour out of it. So we got it down to three and a half hours. Those shows were three and a half hours long. Uh, I was like, I mean, every night it was, I was exhausted. Yeah, it was, it was quite, it was great. I mean, you know, I was young enough to be able to build up the stamina and uh, it was one of, I couldn't do it now, you know, but uh um it was amazing and it was an amazing tour to tour the us and every night getting you know, between 70 and ninety thousand people i mean incredible absolutely incredible how do you approach something like that because obviously the, the the who and their songs are very iconic and and so well known i i did speak to kenny about his time in the who and he said to, to pete i'll join the band but i'm not going to drum like like keith because i can't i am kenny I'll, I'll play the way i play exactly. so when you join a band like that do you do you obviously there's certain bits you have to do because that's that's part of the song but do you approach that from your point of view or do you approach it trying to do what's been done i approach it from the song point of view i play the song um and I've always done that. I, I, I can't copy anybody. I just don't, I just can't even play like that, you know. Um, I just have to play it the way that I think the song should be, you know, um, which is the way you hear it on record. You go, yeah, that's the groove. Obviously, the groove stays the same. Um, but I'm not going to do, you know, those, uh, and, and Kenny also, we're not going to do those crazy Keith Moonfills, you know. He was, he was a symphony orchestra all on his own. It was a totally different way of playing. He didn't really play from the, the groove aspect. He played from the musical top-down aspect, you know, and uh, it, was, it was fascinating. There's a couple of drum fills that he did that I kept because I found them. They used to make me laugh. 
They were so wonderful and so musically joyful and so off the wall. I just went, oh, I have to do that as a little tip of the hat to Keith. Fantastic, you know, absolutely lovely. And um, Which ones were they? Can you remember? Oh, there, there's a fill in the overture of uh, Tommy that I did every night. I just thought, is, uh, how would you even come up with that? It was brilliant. You know, um, and a couple of things uh, uh, on the tracks that Kenny uh, uh, recorded too. You know, uh, you better you bet. I mean, I think I played that track almost identical to the way that that Kenny did. It was great. You know, it's what the song needed. And you know, Kenny also played very much for the song. I, I, that's how I felt anyway. When I heard the song, I said, "Yeah, that's that's a that's a Pete song." I know. Pete's music, I know how he writes, and that's what it needs. Nothing more. Yeah. And uh, so that's how I have always approached um, the, these these tunes. You know, when, when you're in that position of having to replace somebody, but also being in the position of being compared with that somebody, yeah. especially by the fans and the, and the public. Yeah. And I think in some ways one of the most difficult uh, scenarios was joining Toto. Yes. because i was actually going to come on to that because it's a very similar kind of situation yeah yes it was and but it was in a way much deeper because you know um jeff and and david page started that band yeah and um you know jeff was uh you know i mean uh, an amazing player and yeah. revered too um so in a way that was more difficult in terms of being accepted than any, I think any of the other scenarios. Um, but still, same thing. Uh, I'm not going to go in there and copy Jeff. I can't. I mean, no way I could. Um, and the band didn't want that either. That's why they called me. They could have chosen anybody in LA, in Los Angeles, great players, but it, it they just felt it'll be too close to to jeff in terms of stylistically they wanted something they were a rock band and and one of the things that's uh, confusing is that everybody says that they were session musicians that formed a band but that's actually not the case they were a band before they became session musicians it just so happened that they were all wonderful players yeah. and everybody wanted them on their album <laughs> that's it yeah. And by doing all these sessions, they were able to get a record deal and form their band that they had, you know, when they were at school, at high school, basically. So I think they still wanted that essence. They wanted somebody in there who was more of a, a rock group player than, than a session player, you know. So um, And David Page came to see The Who show when we played um, Universal, when we did Tommy. Um, and Luke the you know, he we we had played together in nineteen oh eighty six with Jeff uh, Jeff Beck and uh, Jan Hammer and Carlos Santana in Japan. So you know, we'd already had a, a relationship, you know. Um, and I think that's uh, that's really what happened, you know. So obviously, you'd worked with so many people at this point, and you hadn't actually been. Um a part of a band for, for more than a couple of years. So why did Toto feel like the right fit? Because at this point, I think you moved to America, didn't you, to, to, to properly join the band when you, when you did join Toto? 
Well, yeah, so that, <laughs> of course, and, 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 and of course, everybody thinks that, but that wasn't the case at all. I had already made plans to leave England and go to Los Angeles. Um, I was kind of, I was done with England. I was done with uh, the music scene. Uh, I was producing a lot, but what was happening was the record business was changing. I wasn't digging the way it was going. Um, and I just needed a different challenge. I needed to go a place where there still was rock and roll, I guess. that That's what it was. I also wanted to play with all these great musicians out there. So from 1990, I had been planning my exodus, as it were. And the thing is, as a... As a um, uh, 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 a single not being attached to a band not being signed to a record company or signed to a publishing company it's much more difficult to get a work permit to work in the States okay. yeah. normally what happens is let's say you're signed to at that time uh, Virgin Publishing and you want to go to live in LA Virgin will do it all because you're working for Virgin so you have a work permit with Virgin uh, Publishing in the States. That's how that works. And it'll be for, you know, a year, two years, three years, usually three years, H1. Um, but when you're just a, a, a sole proprietor, as it were, and you want to work with all these different record companies, how do you do that? And so I had uh, I had two lawyers working on it, one music business lawyer in, in New York and one immigration uh, lawyer. And it took really up until the beginning of 1992 before I got my paperwork through. Wow. But they figured I had one call and said, we don't know how we can do this. And I'm going, and I was really uh, upset by that. I went, come on, we've got to be able to do this, you know. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't unknown enough to just be able to go to the States and just stay there illegally, if you see what I mean. Um, <laughs> they were just, you know. So... Uh, yeah. But eventually the immigration officer, he said, i got an idea. How about this? And and they figured out a way. And that was it. So I was already on my way to the, the U.S. Okay. My corporation was set up. Everything was done. I just basically was figuring out when. I thought, well, October, the weather gets a bit bad. I'm, you know, I used to motor race in those days. Not much you know, testing in October. It's too much rain and mist <laughs> um, and wind. So maybe I should just leave them. Uh, I never got the chance. Uh, you know, Jeff uh, passed away in July, and uh, I think it was July '92, and uh, they were just about to start touring or to, to re start rehearsing for the Kingdom of Desire tour. So uh, Luke called me. I went, "Hey, Luke," and I, I didn't know why he was calling. I thought maybe he just wanted to chat. He said, "We're up at our manager's office right now." Uh, and we'd like to know if you want to come join the band for the uh, for the tour. I was like, "Wow, okay." Um, when we need to rehearse, come over as soon as you can. Uh, and I, you know, I had a whole bunch of stuff, you know, and I had to set about calling everybody and cancelling it, and you know. So anyway, I said, "Right, I can make it at the beginning of September." And Luke said, "That gives us three weeks." I got not much I can do about this. I said, oh, we'll make it work. And uh, and that was that. So, and it coincided with me leaving the UK and also a decision. Uh, first of all, 
being out on the road with Toto, what a great band. I mean, the musicianship. I remember the first song we played in rehearsals, Hydra. It felt amazing. And I just said, wow, I wanted to feel, have this feeling in a band for, you know, for so many years. Just ah, the time. It was great. Absolutely fantastic. So um, after being on the road for about two or three weeks, Mike Picaro, he said, how do you feel about joining the band? I said, you mean permanently? He said, yeah. Wow. I never even thought about it because I had no idea. I don't think anybody knew what they wanted to do. You know, it was such a big shock to them, you know. Yeah, yeah. But Luke said at the end of that first rehearsal, he said, he looked at Dave, he looked at Mike, said, I think this is going to work out just fine, which was, which was lovely, you know. Um, and uh, I also thought, well, what do I do? I've been doing session work since I was 16 years old. Do I really want to keep doing that? And now I'm 35. No, I, I, I think I want to be in a band. I think I want to do much more than just play. I want to compose uh, music for it. I want to do a lot of the technical stuff. I want to continue with my engineering, which is going to be very difficult to suddenly in, in Los Angeles to say, well, actually, uh, I am an engineer. Oh, really? you know, it's like people, a lot of people had no idea, you know, and then I turn up to a studio as, as the, I rented the studio for some project and I'm engineering. They're going, are you? I said, yeah, yeah. Mom. you know, and they were like, oh, you know, it was kind of tricky, you know, a bit, bit odd, but uh, it worked. Um, and that's the decision I made. You see, I, I just thought, yes, I will join a band now. And um, 21 years. Yeah. I know. I incredible years. <laughs> it was funny because just doing some of the research i came across um a forum um i think it was 2014 when the news came out that you were leaving toto and um quite a few people very disappointed and upset that you were leaving the group because obviously you became such a, a big part of the band as well um so what was it that made you decide after 21 years that it was time to to move on and do different projects um well I had a, uh, so a, a venture got my, I've had various studios, but they've always been in my in yeah. my home. I actually then went and uh, started a commercial studio in Sherman Oaks. So yeah. suddenly it's a bit more serious and, and I have to spend a lot of time running the studio and, you know, filling it with, with work and, you know, to, to make it happen. I did all my projects there. And the problem was at that point, Toto was really a live touring band. Mm -hmm. No point making a record anymore, really. It, you know, it, it's that kind of thing. But I was still very much into recording, and I probably did more recording than any of the band. Because by that time, Luke, you know, he, I mean, he did a few sessions, but he wasn't really interested in it. Um, David didn't really want to do it. Mike didn't get called for it. You know, it's, um, it, but I was still very much in that, recording thing because that's something i grew up doing and it's just something i love to do i uh i love to make records i think people say uh, what, what do you do i say i make records because that's kind of how really most of my work is um it's making a record you know so and being on the road with total all the time it was just too much and it, it was very difficult to run the studio and, you know, things were changing in the band, and I just felt 
I think it's time. I think this is enough, you know. So, and I needed to be free to be able to do a lot of other projects. I wanted to do my solo project and uh, and all the other, you know, production and uh, engineering. So, and playing, you know, playing on different records. And um, so that's that's really how that came about. Lovely stuff. And just one more record just to touch on um, quickly. Again, one that doesn't get spoke about highly enough, in my opinion. It's a record that I love. Um, you did a little bit of work with Big Country. You know? Obviously, you worked with Tony Butler on, on various things as well, so maybe that was the connection in there. But uh, Matt Brzecki had left the group at this point, and uh, Buffalo Skinners, which is a brilliant album. I absolutely love it. Um, it's, uh, it's probably more hard and rocking than than some of their, their earlier stuff. I think at that point, I think Stuart was influenced by the the, the kind of grunge thing that was taking over America. It was, it was right. kind of that kind of feel, wasn't it? So yeah. what's your memories yeah. of working with Stuart and Bruce and Tony on that one? You know, funny you should say that. The, the Buffalo Skinners album was my last recording of an album while living in the UK. Ah, there you go. <laughs> it was the last record I recorded in London. And right at that time, the day before I drove into Rack Studios was when I got the call from Luke. So all the time we were in the studio, when we had, a, I was on the phone to people trying to cancel stuff and trying to figure out whether this is going to work. Um, but yes, uh, uh, I'd never recorded. It was one the one studio I'd never worked in before. Funnily enough, uh, it was Mickey Mo's studio, and um, uh, they had called me to do an album a couple of years before, actually, but uh, it didn't work out. I think Mark went back to to join the band something like that but this time um yeah and we had such a wonderful time um Stuart, what a lovely man and we laughed so much and i'll never forget something Stuart said to me i'm behind the console it was an api console and i'm sitting there with the engineer i don't remember who engineered it and chris briggs who was from chrysalis he attended all the sessions and uh, I've known him for years. Um, and somebody said something. Stuart was, was sitting in the, uh, the sofa in front of the console, so I couldn't see him. And um, we were talking about something, and I, something happened. I laughed. And he said, Stuart said, Simon, you have the rudest laugh I have ever heard. <laughs> the dirtiest laugh. You have the dirtiest laugh I've ever heard. <laughs> and I'll never forget that, you know. Um, we had a great time, a really great time. Uh, uh, that's all I remember. It was, just a, it was a really fun record to make. Uh, something weird about this, I remember exactly the snare drum I used for those sessions. How would I remember that? Why would I remember that? <laughs> um, it was the only time I recorded with a Zildjian snare drum. It just didn't record well on every other thing. But in that room, with that band, it was perfect. Isn't that weird? I mean, why would I remember that, you know? Um, uh, just strange stuff like that. But I guess because it was very poignant. Even as we were recording, I knew, kind of knew, this is the last time we're going to be recording in London. Unless, you know, I come back to, to record. But whilst being a citizen uh, um uh, a resident of, of england you know yeah it was very poignant i i remember it very well uh a great album yeah lovely 
Lovely stuff. And, and just one last question from me. I mean, given everything you've done and everyone you've worked with and all these names and everything, have you got any of those kind of, was that really me or uh, standout experiences that jump to mind when whenever you look back on everything you've done in your career? Um, I don't know how to answer that one. <laughs> you stumped me. <laughs> you finally stumped the drama. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I just, I think... I think what's really cool is the wide range of styles of music. Yeah. I think that's what I've been very fortunate to do, to be able to play on some of the, the heaviest metal albums there ever were, the beginning of heavy metal. We didn't even call it heavy metal. And when I meet younger metal drummers now, they go, hey, man, sin after sin, man. That was, I grew up with that. And I'm going, Oh, and I read something the other day. Somebody, some a journalist said, yeah, that was the first time double bass drum was used in metal. I, I'm not actually sure that's true because I remember seeing uh, Black Oak, Arkansas with Tommy Aldridge, and he was a big influence to me because the way he played double bass drum, that was the first time I went, that's it. That's how they should be played. So he was doing it way before me. But for some reason... Sin After Sin seems to have this reputation. Uh, you look at Wikipedia. It says it. First time, you know, double bass drum was really introduced to, to metal. And, well, great, but it wasn't, I, I didn't mean to do it. It was just happened, you know. <laughs> um, and then, on the other hand, I can do a straight-ahead bebop album. I played with Gil Evans, you know. Um, I have a, a project which is a straight-ahead project, you know. We made a record in 1999 called Vantage Point. You know, so it, 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 I'm so lucky to a <clears throat> to be able to cross between these these genres, um, and uh, to be allowed to do it. I guess that's the other thing. You know, um, so I think that to me, in, in a way, from a, from a playing point of view, has been uh, you, you know the, the let's say the biggest um, achievement really, the one I feel very proud of you know yeah uh, wow you know that's because to me that's it's all western music it's not really that different you know when you start playing with indian musicians japanese musicians which i've done it's like oh shit this is now i am, am i really am out of my comfort zone now you know doing a little jam with uh zakia hussein and uh george brooks i'm in in mumbai i'm like why this just i can play him fine but why is this so much more difficult it's it's the feel it's it it's tricky you know so now that's world music that's a whole different thing so really all the music i played is is all western music you know so it's um um it shouldn't be that that difficult but uh you know some people just think it's very odd and and difficult to go from playing this type of music to that type of music you know but uh, to me, that's a, the, that's the gift of playing music, you know. Yeah, and to me, that's that's that just shows that the level of trust and the level of your ability that that all these different musicians from these different genres do trust you and 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 hanker for you to to play on their records as well. So it's absolutely phenomenal. But it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Simon. I could sit here all Great. day and listen to your stories. It has been uh, phenomenal. <laughs> um, thanks so much for joining us here on VRP Rocks. Thank you very much. I'm glad this actually worked. <laughs> yes, it's held up. Thank you very much. Great. Okay, bye-bye. 
There you go, the brilliant Simon Phillips there. I hope you enjoyed that fascinating look at the career. Well, some of his career, basically. I couldn't cover all of it because he's done so much, but we did get through as much as we could, and I thank Simon for being so generous with his time. And that's it for me and this week's episode then. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app so you get all the episodes released every single Monday. Loads more great guests and brilliant stories to come over the next few weeks. Please leave VRP Rocks a five-star review on the podcast app that you use as well. It really does make a big difference. Check out VRP Rocks on YouTube as well. Give us a like and follow and subscribe on the social media channels and just search for VRP Rocks pretty much everywhere and you'll find us all over the place. A big thank you to everyone who interacts and comments and emails and everything like that every week I really really do appreciate it I'll be back next week with another fantastic guest a man who's written songs for some legends more legends we're talking Alice Cooper and Kiss and Bon Jovi and Joan Jett and, and so much more you're going to hear some more fantastic stories on next week's episode so until then take care It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.